hier. Ähm, kurz nochmal Hallo nach Deutschland. Meine Eltern gucken zu. Hab euch lieb, Mama und Papa. Um, can you believe that we've been in the book of Mark for almost a year now? I mean, I couldn't when I was preparing for this. It's been, it's been a year. Uh, the reason why I'm saying it, and we're only in chapter eight, we still you know, have ways to go. Uh, but the reason why I'm saying it is because um, for the first eight chapters, we've seen a lot of miracles and a lot of works of Jesus. So we've been studying this. And um, I remember I got to teach the first Sunday of the year, which was a fun one. Um, it was on Jesus casting out a demon, which was a really good New Year's uh, sermon. Start out the year with casting some, out some demons. Um, but then I wanted to really kind of start with giving a shout out to Wilson, who's in the back there. Wilson taught last week and he did an amazing Amazing job, a really amazing job of kind of outlining what we've been reading in the first eight chapters of Mark, what we've been going through, what we've been learning specifically about the crowds, how the crowds did not understand who Jesus was, but then also kind of tracing the way of the disciples and, not, and seeing that they actually didn't really get Jesus either. Take, for example, the story of, the, the sto of Jesus calming the storm. At the end, the disciples asked themselves, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. After he walked on the water, Mark says um, that they were still struggling to see Jesus clearly. This is just a few chapters ago. And Wilson concluded, and I've never heard this way, but he concluded that the partial healing of the blind man, which we always struggle with understanding of why there was a partial healing, was actually a metaphor for the partial seeing of the disciples of who Jesus really was. And that really struck me. Um, it really struck me because, one, I've never heard it, and two, it really set me up for a good teaching this morning. So keep that in mind. The, the partial healing was a partial seeing of who Jesus was. So keep that in mind as I'm reading the text this morning out of Mark chapter 8. Um, we're going to be in 27 through 33. It's going to be on the screen. I'll give you a couple seconds for those who have physical Bibles and still move pages. Mark 8, 27 through 33. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. And he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed after three days and rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. This is our text for this morning. Let me pray. Father, we thank you and we are grateful for your word. And as we remember and understand that your disciples were able to partially see and hear you, but get, got the full picture of what the kingdom is, God, would you remind us today what your kingdom is like and who you are as the Messiah and in what ways you want to remind us and challenge us to renew our ways with you, Jesus. We thank you for your clarity in your word. Thank you for who you are and we ask for your presence this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. In January of 2018, we brought this little nugget home. There he is. His name actually literally is Nugget. 
Um, but let me tell you the story of how we got Nugget. I wasn't a really big fan of dogs growing up. Um, I had a weird concept about them. Mostly I was thinking that they're just like crazy, hyper-energetic animals who need a lot of attention and care, and that they limit you in. They just, they rob you of some of the freedom that you have. But let me explain you how I got to this understanding, okay? So growing up, my uncle had a, had a dog who ended up biting my cousin's um, friend in the face and had to be put down. Two of my elementary school friends got bitten by a dog as well. Then I was reminded that you have to buy food, which is already expensive enough for us living in San Francisco. Um, you have to buy toys and accessories, entertain them, walk them daily, and you couldn't travel as much anymore as you could. Now, my wife really wanted a Frenchie. I liked Frenchies. I didn't have anything against them. I liked seeing them on the streets with other people, but I wasn't really a big fan of having them permanently in my house. Um, but if you know my wife, you know that if she really wants something, she goes full steam to get it. So she started researching um, all these French Bulldog breeders in the Bay Area. I think at this point she knew every single breeder that was out there. And so she found a breeder that just had a litter and was like, hey, Toby, why don't we just at least go check it out? Let's just, just give it a try. And so here's a picture of when we first met Nugget. Yeah. He fell asleep on Kristen's lap. It was so cute. Now here the story takes a turn. Obviously, with a, you know, if you see a dog like this, it takes a turn. But we get to the breeder, and they just had a litter of seven really cute Frenchies. They named them after the seven dwarfs. Um, and, a few, um, and a few weeks before that, or sorry, they had the, the puppies, but my wife secretly had the plan or was on the mission that we're going to get a dog. We're going to leave here, at least put a deposit down for a dog and take one home. Now, she was set on getting the smallest girl she could find, ideally in a cream color. So you can tell by the name, um, he was not cream, and he was, uh, it was a he and not a she. But as she was kind of sitting there, I was you know, sitting in the back on the couch, as she was sitting there starting to play with all the little Frenchies in the litter, I kind of got into this like, all right, whatever, I'm here already, might as well just you know, pick up a dog. So she might have just said that too. It's like, why don't you just pick one up? So I grabbed Nugget, and I held him, and um, had him in my arm, and he was just like, there was just something really loving about him that I never experienced before. So I walk over to her and say, hey, Kristen, I think this is the one. And she was like, you know, I thought he didn't want a Frenchie at all. I thought he didn't want a dog. So she was excited, you know. She was ready to lay down her plan of having a, a cream a girl for a, a brindle or brown um, male. Um, and so we, we went home, and we uh, discussed it and decided that we're going to take him home. Um, but my concept still of this dog was, even though I, I started to love him and endure him, my concept was like, man, he's still going to be a bunch of work, um, maybe a little bit of fun, but, but just like no more flexibility. But as soon as we had that dog home, I was like, wow, this is so different than what I expected. Um, I know my neighbors and fellow dog um, um, Owners are always in disbelief that I hardly take this guy for a walk. He actually just loves laying on the couch and running around with our kids. But he just became a source of unconditional love, of snuggles and a constant presence in our house. And he went with us through some of the hardest times and some of the most beautiful times. And he's become such a loyal family dog. Is that picture up? Yeah, there he is. So my concept of having a dog expanded by meeting this dog and realizing 
there's something in my heart that needed this dog, didn't know I needed this dog, right? There's oftentimes when Kristen still has to remind me, he's like, hey, he's, he's just a dog. He's, he's not, not a human being, he's a dog. Now, I know coming from a dog example to Jesus is kind of like a, you know, you have to think about a bunch of corners, but just kind of go there with me, okay, for a second. And think less about the dog, but think more about my concept shift of a dog, right? I had this concept shift of like, this guy is just work to like, this is one of the most dogs I've ever had, and I think we'll be never having another dog again because they'll never be able to fill the, the place that he's taken. But um, similar to this concept change, once I met the dog, it seems like the disciples here had the, same, the similar experience, right? So far we've seen them that they didn't realize who Jesus was, they didn't get him, but in our passage, finally, Peter got it, right? He says, Jesus, you are the Messiah. So they finally got it. Now, what if Peter still didn't get it? I mean, he got it right, right? He said it. He said the words, you're the Messiah. And I, don't, I, don't, I wouldn't say that he didn't believe that. But does Peter, or do you and I really have the right concept big enough to call Jesus the Messiah? And I think that's the question that this text is asking us and invites us to question ourselves with. And it's a really, really important question. So let's go through our passage together to rightly ask ourselves and learn from Jesus and the disciples, all right? So we start off in Mark here, and Mark's telling us that Jesus and his disciples were walking to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. They were heading south. They turned away from all the ministerial work in the Galilean region and turned south facing Jerusalem. They were going to a, onto a critical path in the, in the ministry ahead. And while they were walking, Jesus starts a conversation. Um, he kind of starts some processing time. And here's how I imagine Jesus asking his first question. He turns to his disciples and says, So disciples, so far... The people that I've talked to, interacted with, um, that I've taught the things of God and his kingdom, who do they say I am? Like the ones that were in my baptism. Hear the Father say, um, this is my beloved son. Hear that's spoken over me. Who did they say I am? The ones who heard me teaching in the synagogue and then I drove out an impure spirit in front of them. The people who brought their relatives to me to get them healed. The tax collectors and sinners whom I dined with forgiving their sins. The 9,000 people who saw me multiplying the bread and fish, tell me, who do they say I am? The disciples responded with, well, Jesus, some say you are John the Baptist, who literally just got killed two chapters ago, beheaded. Um, Others say you are Elijah or another Old Testament prophet. Now we see that if the disciples, if we say the disciples didn't get it, the crowds definitely didn't get it, right? They were pretty far off in our understanding. But at least they were curious, right? They were asking, they were, they were trying to conceptualize him. They were trying to put him into a category that they had. And for them, the concept of Jesus didn't expand past that of an Old Testament prophet. But even with a lack of a concept span that the crowds had, they might not be as far off as we think, or maybe even some of us might be. Let me explain to you the concept of an Old Testament prophet to understand this point. There's this book called Knowing Jesus Through the Old Testament. It's probably one of my favorite books. Um, And I highly recommend you reading it if you ever have a chance. In it, Christopher Wright explains it like this. 
three major areas of life occupied the energies of the prophets a lot of time. First, there was the spiritual aspect, concerned with the people's relationship with God, the threat of idolatry and hypocrisy of worship that was unrelated to practical moral living. Pretty obvious in Jesus' lives, right? Reminding the crowds over and over that they need to stay on track with following Jesus. Second, there was the social and economical aspect, concerned with the processes in Israel's society that were causing poverty, explo exploitation, debt, and corruption. And the third, there was the political aspect, concerned with the use and abuse of power by those who wielded it in the palace, the temple, and the courts. And I think it's, if we read the Gospels, we see that Jesus challenging Israel on all three levels of these things. Now, the prophets, of, the prophets' mission of the Old Testament was to bring the nation of Israel back into an alignment with God's way of life. Not just on a personal level, which we always think of, it's like just have a personal relationship. No, you can see here that they, it had to reach onto the social and economical level and a political level as well. You see, God's way of life reaches into all levels of the life of Israel. The Old Testament prophets tried to keep Israel aligned with God's way of life so, they, they, so that Israel won't end up in exile, but Israel failed to stay course, as we know in the Old Testament story. And so while in exile, they really, really tried super hard to realign themselves with God's way so that they can kind of force God to send in Messiah. It's like, if we're just doing it right, I think he has to listen to us and bring us a Messiah somebody who would liberate them from their oppressors and set them free from the slavery that they were sitting in. So after about 430 years of silence, that's how much his time has passed between the Old Testament and Jesus coming on the scene, the people of Israel have kind of grown a little skeptical, which makes sense, um, that God would actually send to them a Messiah, somebody who would liberate them. And since they really haven't had any of the Old Testament prophets reappearing or any sort of Old Testament prophets reappearing whatsoever, it was easy for them to think that Jesus is just somebody who's gonna pave the way for the Messiah. Why would God start out right with, you know, with his ace, in his, uh, ace up his sleeve? He wouldn't just like bring his best, best player down there. So an Old Testament prophet is the best we can do for this. So putting him into the category of a prophet over that of the Messiah was the best they could do. They really tried. And they weren't too far off with how the way uh, Christopher Wright describes to us what uh, a prophet was. But they didn't have the capacity to think bigger. Now, why does this matter to you and I, right? We're not the crowds, we're the disciples. Well, as I'm looking around the room and imagining the people who are watching on the live stream, I know that most of the people would say that we're Christians. We would identify as followers of Jesus. We've said the prayer, simply acknowledged that Jesus is Lord and Savior. But I would still argue that some of us, even though we identify as Christians, are actually more often spectators of Christ than followers of Christ. And I'd say sometimes rightly so. We might see Jesus doing things in our lives or the lives of others that are clearly Jesus doing things. But we also see how much harm so-called so Christians have done to others, making us skeptical of this path, this way of Jesus, if that's actually the right way to go. We might find ourselves identifying with some of the teachings of Jesus, specifically about love and kindness and, and being good, good human being, but we, we dismiss others of being culturally irrelevant or outdated. 
Maybe some of us even reject his messiahship altogether because we might not even understand what his messiahship is. We might have an on and off relationship with him. We just we try to be there a little bit, but then not really. And you know, try just it's it's a personal level, right? You just don't. I'll do my personal thing, but we're not we're not really participating with him in a broader setting. You might come to church. You might tune into church, participate in community with other Christians, but deep in your heart, you know that there's more to this Jesus than you experience, see, or hear. You're a spectator of faith. And maybe that's because you haven't fully experienced who he really is. And I think part of the problem of why do we don't experience who he really is is because we are so distracted. We're distracted to see Jesus and connect with the true Lord Jesus. I mean, it's crazy. We live in an age of technology where we have everything at the top of our fingers. You know, everything is accessible in this little box. All the good things and all the bad things, but... There's apps that help us how to pray, that help us to read scripture or uh, hear scripture, they help you enter into Christian meditation, they help you hear podcasts from some of the most amazing Bible scholars out there. They help you even partake in online seminary for free. There's so much to be distracted by that we actually miss the point. We miss Jesus. Let me ask you, when was the last time you spent time away from your phone and spent time being with Jesus? Not just hearing about him, but hearing from him. Undisrupted time, just you and him, so that you can hear from him. Maybe you are scared to hear things from him that you might not want to hear. Or maybe you don't believe that he's capable of offering more. Or maybe you even doubt that he can even speak today. Now, from my own experience, I can testify that he is always kind and always loving in the ways that he shows up, despite those beliefs that I often have as well. When I connect with Jesus, he's glad to be with me. Not too long ago, I had an Emmanuel prayer session with David McKinney. Uh, if you don't know what Emmanuel prayer session is, it's a prayer style that leads you into a time of hearing, connecting with Jesus directly. And it was some of the most clarifying time um, between me and him that I, that I had in a long time. Jesus taught me a lot of things about just really how much he loved and cared for me mostly. But then towards the end, something really strange happened and I kind of didn't even want to tell Dave about it. I ended up telling him about it. Um, but I didn't want to tell him what it was, because it's just like, it's like, I think this is hypocrisy, but maybe not. Like, what, does, is this possible? So what happens is that, I, that you know, in, in Mary prayer, you have your eyes closed. You're imagining Jesus. You see Jesus. And what happened all of a sudden, and people who have done Emmanuel prayer, they, they can attest to that you get these physical sensations with it too. It's not just, you just don't see things, but you also actually feel things. So I found myself in one of those spinning things on the, on the playground. Have you ever been in one of those? You just like spin out, you spin out of control. You, you look at other people sitting on, on those and you're just like, this is spinning so slow. How are you feeling like you're out of control? That's how I felt. I literally felt that. I literally was feeling, spinning on this thing, feeling. And as I was trying to like get glimpses of what was spinning me, I saw Jesus. I'm like, that can't be. That has to be the devil. Like, Jesus wouldn't spin me like this. Why would he, you know, I mean, stupid song comes from, you spin me right? Anyways. Um, yeah, have you seen that one where they're like, Christopher, it's like, you spin me right round, Jesus, right round? Yeah? Anybody seen those YouTube videos? I'm like, I'm supposed to myself. Um, 
But anyways, I was spinning and I saw Jesus spinning me. And so at the end, after a couple seconds, it stopped. And, um, and I saw Jesus and I know that he saw my face kind of this, this look of like, why would you do that to me? Like, that's just, that's not cool, <laughs> right? And, um, and all, I, all I saw from him is just like this super kind and loving smile back at me and him saying, you know what, Toby? I'm in control. No matter how hard you're spinning and how crazy things might be around you, I got you. I'm in control. The spinning will never be out of control. And it was such an amazing moment of loving reinsurance and, and time with Jesus. And that's how I typically see Jesus showing up. I don't see him showing up as shaming or rebuking anybody in really, really harmful ways. He's a healer. He's a lover. He cares and he's kind. You know, Jesus really wants to meet you where you're at. You don't have to just become better or get things out of the way first. He wants to be with you in your out-of-controlledness. And he doesn't just want you, want, want you to see him as a spectacle or an event that you can see from the distance but can't really participate in. He says, abide in me. He's glad to spend time with us. And he's glad to reveal himself to us in ways that we never thought we could. But that requires us making time and space for him. Now, if this is how the spectators see and experience um, Jesus as the crowd, um, this is how it's described here, but then Jesus kind of gets a little sneaky because he only used that question to launch into his real question. Here's, the, here's what our text says, uh, says again, or next. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am, disciples? Peter, as we know him, goes straight out, spokesperson for the disciples, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. And he then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. And he spoke plainly about this. All right, so we're back at the beginning. Peter finally gets it, right? He says, you are it. You aren't just someone who does things to pave the way for another. You're not just an Old Testament prophet. You are the one. You are the one we've been waiting for. That should just sign, seal, deliver it right there, right? But if we read on Mark, it kind of gets weird right after that. It's like, you see this, and it gets right. So let's turn over to Matthew 16 for a second. Matthew 16, verses uh, 13 through 20. Because um, Matthew actually um, paints, a, paints a different picture um, or adds some more color to the story right here. Let me find it right here. Also, my notes just skip forward. There we go. Um, all right. Matthew 16, 13 through 20 says this. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi and he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. Sounds pretty similar to Mark's account. But who, who about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah and the son of the living God. So same thing so far. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. 
I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you lose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And then he ordered his disciples to not tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Now, this will be another, like a third sermon probably. This is already two sermons I'm preaching. This will be a third sermon to go through all these things that Jesus says here. So let's just focus on verse 17. Peter says, you're the Messiah. And to that, Jesus actually rejoices. He said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. It's interesting here. Jesus uses Sermon on the Mount, beatitude language to talk to Peter. He said, blessed are you. We know this from the Sermon on the Mount, right? He says, Peter, this, you didn't say this because you were able to put one-on-one together, do the simple math of, you know, piecing what I've been teaching together. But you, you said this because the Father in heaven has revealed this to you. And here we see one thing, one of the things at least, that, that sets the crowd and the disciples apart. The revelatory power of the Father. And as a disciple, revelation can and must be received. Revelations from the Father are actually really important for our maturing and transformational process. I think without revelation, we get stuck in our ways. But we need fresh revelations from the Father. And you see how much that pleases Jesus? That his disciples get revelation, that they see them? Now, there are things in our discipleship that we don't have rhyme and reason for often too, but that have to be straight revelations from the Father. However, this requires a certain openness to Jesus that a spectator doesn't have, but that a disciple has, someone who is committed to Jesus. So after this, whether you go along the Matthew pass and the Mark pass, it just gets weird, um, and we'll just get right into the weirdness. Peter, so Peter spills the beans, right? He says, you're it, and Jesus says, shh, shh. When I first read this, I was like, wait, wh- wh- what? Why, would, why would you not, why did you, wouldn't you not want to tell this? Like, here he is. Here's the one we're looking for. Well, to understand why Jesus didn't want the disciples to proclaim he, who he is, we need to understand what Peter is proclaiming when he says that Jesus is the Messiah. All right, so let me get into a little word searching here, all right? The word Messiah is Hebrew, and then there's another word that you often hear referred to Jesus as the Christ, which is the Greek word, word, and they both mean the same thing. So Messiah, Christ mean the same thing. It's not, a, it's not a name, it's a title that's given to Jesus, and it's called the anointed one. You see, in Israel's story, kings and priests were anointed to step into their role. One of the most significant anointed kings in Israel's history was King David. He was the king his rule and reign in Israel promoted flourishing for God's people in ways that, hadn't, that, that they hadn't experienced in a very, very long time. And then there was never anybody like him. Once he died, Israel, the kingdom of Israel, spiraled. It split into two, two kingdoms, and ultimately all of Israel ended up in exile because of their disobedience to God and his way of life. As a result, they were taken from their land, living in slavery in other countries. And while they were oppressed, their longing for a great military leader only grew stronger. They longed for a liberator, somebody who would come, a fair king who would set them free and who would rule them in the right ways. They longed for a second David. Listen to uh, 
to, to the words in Jeremiah 23, verses five through eight. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteous savior. So then the days are coming, declares the Lord, when people will no longer say, as surely as the Lord lives who brought Israel up out of Egypt, the Exodus is mentioned right here, but they will say, as surely as the Lord lives who brought the descendants of Israel up out of the land of the north and of all the countries where he had banished them, then they will live in their own land. Now this and other passages helped Israel understand that there is a Messiah coming that will gather them together and that will rule them rightly. Now fast forward to Jesus' time, some of Israel is back in the country, but not all of them, right? They're still dispersed all over the world, and they're still living, even if you lived in Israel, they lived in occupied land. Uh, the Roman Empire ruled them, and they were still exploited and oppressed. So even though some of them were back in their own country, they were still longing and desire to be set free from evil and injustices and be under the kingship of the anointed one, the one who's gonna do it all right, who's just and kind. Now that's Peter's understanding and most of Israel's understanding of who Jesus was supposed to be or who the Messiah was supposed to be. Something that in our minds might be best captured through an image like this. There's so much wrong with this picture. I don't even wanna get into this. But if you want a print of this picture, it's available online. You can buy this online. Uh, as I was preparing for this, um, my son actually named all, most of the superheroes on there, I helped him with some. But then when he got to Jesus, he's like, who's that guy in white? I was like, oh, that's Jesus. He said, why is he there? Yeah. Good question, big. Uh, anyway, by definition from our favorite research page, Wikipedia, a superhero or superheroine is a stock character that possesses superpowers, abilities beyond those of ordinary people, and fits the role of the hero, typically using his or her powers to help the world become a better place, or dedicating themselves to protecting the public and fighting crime. Now, even though Israel or Peter didn't have a concept of a superhero, superheroes came quite later, um, they were thinking that Jesus would be some sort of a superhero like this. He would come, march into Jerusalem, overthrow the, the Roman gov government, gather all of Israel, and reign in the, king uh, the kingdom of God. And even though it's easy to make fun of this, I think we often think of Jesus in the same way, even as his disciples. And I think there's a culture that we've even built around that, where we think Jesus is just gonna come in and make everything the way that I want him to make it. I want him to make my life better. I want him to make the life of the world better in the way that I think it's gonna be better. And if he doesn't, then he's not the superhero I thought he is. I'm gonna reference something really cheesy, but here is our beloved Hillsong music. Um, this is a real song from 2005 that I'm gonna about to quote. Uh, it was on a music um, video, um, on, a, on a record release uh, um, called Hillsong Life Worship for Our Kids. So this is how our kids learn worship. Uh, it was, there was a hit single on this record called Jesus is My Superhero. And believe it or not, when I looked it up on YouTube, it had 12 million streams, 12 million streams. So here's some of the lyrics. I'm not gonna sing it, don't worry. 
Jesus, you're my superhero, you're my star, my best friend. Jesus, you're my superhero, you're my star, my best friend. The, the video is even better. Like, if you ever want to look at the video, it gets better. It's literally Jesus flying around as Superman. He's better than Spider-Man, better than Superman, better than Batman, better than anyone. Better than Yu-Gi-Oh! I don't know why they had to put Yu-Gi-Oh! in there, but they did. Then Barbie, I never really pictured Barbie as a superhero, but they probably want to be really inclusive. Better than X-Men, better than anyone. And I know it's really easy to judge that, but this is songs that were created that were listened to 12 million times that our kids are listening to, right? Or some of our kids maybe listen to. Maybe we should check on our village volunteers. Just kidding, not here. But there is this culture that we've created that Jesus is this kind of superhero who's just going to come in and with force and weapons bring about mostly our will that we've applied and put onto Jesus. Get our will done. And it's, the problem is that too often we take secular concepts and ideas and just adopt them to make, them make ourselves look a little bit better and look a little bit more secular, right? Like, did you notice that in the lyrics? It, it says that, that Jesus is better than anyone, but they never really say why or how so. We think that he, Jesus is to be destroying anything that comes in, in the way of righteousness. And what happened to our, so the question that we have to ask ourselves is what happened to our God of love? What happened to the God that we leave that loves the world so much that he gave his only one and, son, one and only son? So when Peter says, you're the Messiah, he was thinking of Jesus more as a superhero. The interesting thing is that, that at the end, Jesus doesn't say, no, 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 I'm not, right? Which he should have done. He says, no, I'm not that superhero. He says, don't tell anyone. So why would he say that? Let's read verses 31 and 32 again. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and then he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. The first thing we need to notice in this text is that Jesus refers to him when he's teaching about himself as the Son of Man, not the Messiah. He's not saying, I'm the Messiah. He's saying, I'm the Son of Man. Why does he say he's the Son of Man, and who the heck is the Son of Man? Christopher Wright again in the book, um, Knowing Jesus Through the Old Testament. He says, most scholars agree that the Son of Man was not a messianic title or figure in the intertestamental Jewish writings, which was between uh, the last prophet and Jesus showing up. So there wasn't a concept established where the Son of Man became a common phrase for the Messiah. That is, the people of Jesus' day, whatever else they were hoping for in the way of a Messiah, they were not on the lookout for a Son of Man. This meant that by using it for himself, Jesus could avoid the package of misunderstandings surrounding other familiar messianic titles and instead fill this term with meaning that was based on his own true perception of who he was and what he had come for. So he started using a word, and you see it actually often, even our first worship song, we, start, we hear the rumors of the Son of Man, right? He, he, he used a word that literally just meant like sir or person so that he can use a word and reshape the concept of who everybody thought the disciple was supposed to be. You see, God's plan for salvation was never meant to be a military-style revolt. And it wasn't only focused on Israel. And God doesn't just start to lay out a rescue plan through the spiraling kingdom of Israel. He actually does it way before that. Turn with me to Genesis 3, verses 14 through 15. If you have a Bible. If you don't, then you just wait for the words on the screen. Uh, Genesis 3, first pages of the Bible. 
Um, Adam and Eve have just spiraled, interesting enough. They have fallen. They ate the fruit of the tree that God told them not to eat from, and God found them hiding in the garden, and Adam and Eve, Eve tell them what has happened. They say there was a serpent. The serpent told us um, to eat from this tree, and so we did it. And so God addresses all parties involved through a curse or through curses. And let's look at what he says to the serpent. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And here's where it's getting interesting. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, which is so weird, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. You see, after the serpent deceives humanity, which Adam and Eve represent, to disobey God and now making themselves capable of doing evil, God curses the source of evil in form of the serpent. And in this curse, he says, there will be enmity between the serpent's offspring and the woman's offspring. So there will be some offsprings and there will be enmity between them. And the woman's offspring, oh, sorry, um, that the serpent's offspring will strike the woman's offspring, so there will be some sort of striking, some sort of battle, um, but that the woman's offspring will crush the serpent's offspring's head. So there was a defeat. There's a battle and a defeat, where, which means that ultimately somebody, the woman's offspring will be defeating evil once and for all. Now this might be a little hard to understand, so let me, let me kind of rephrase it a little bit and explain it in, in the context of our text today. When Jesus teaches his disciples about what will happen to him here in Mark 8, he teaches them that this very promise from Genesis will be fulfilled. You've been waiting for this from the first pages of the Bible, and it will be fulfilled. But he says that I, I am the Messiah, and I will suffer. Now I will suffer and be struck in the heel by being rejected and killed, and it will seem as though evil has won, but actually I have to die on the cross and, die, uh, and resurrect after three days and through that I will have crushed evil's head and defeated it forever. I will have undermined the systems and rules of evil by overcoming death and now holding the power over evil and death. And not just, I'm not just holding the power over evil and death, I'm making it accessible for everybody to overcome evil and death. And then the rebuking happens, right? Because that wasn't what Peter had in mind. He was like, no, 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 Jesus, you're not doing that. You're going to, you're going to Jerusalem, you're going to overthrow the government, and you're going to um, establish your rule. You can't, you can't just be let this weak person go in and let yourself be killed. But then the text said that when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Now, Peter's attitude needed to be rebuked. The revelation that Jesus was the Messiah was given him to him by the Father. But his understanding of who the Messiah was had only human concerns in mind. Jesus rebukes him in front of the other disciples. And just a couple minutes ago, I was saying that Jesus doesn't shame people. And he doesn't shame Peter by doing this, though we think we can easily interpret it into there. Um, he says, um, he, well, let me, here's a quote that actually puts it in the best way. A uh, quote from Dr. Kim Hua Tan wrote a really good um, commentary on this passage. This is what he says to Peter. The Greek phrase, and if any people who know ancient Greek will 
um, kill me after this. Maybe not kill me literally, but hipage o piso mu, get behind me, is highly, highly interesting. So when he says get behind me, it's really interesting, as it may be understood as a Semitic idiom for commanding someone to get out of sight or get back in line. A similar phrase, dute o piso mu, is used in 117, where Jesus summoned his disciples, especially Peter, to follow him. Hence, Jesus is not saying get lost, but he says, come and follow me again. Get back in line. Keep following me. The category of the Messiah that Peter and his disciples had in mind was too small and was wrong. He doesn't want them to tell anybody because they didn't get it right. But he doesn't say, well, get lost. He says, keep learning from me. Keep following me. Keep being on my path. And that comes out of a compassionate heart that Jesus has. As we trace Peter's steps in following Jesus along his path, being back in line, we see that it was still really hard for Peter to grab, grab this concept. And I think that shows the compassion and kindness of Christ. You see, when Jesus gets arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, what does Peter do? He still has a sword because he's ready for the revolt, and he defends Jesus physically. He's still ready to usher in the messiahship of the Jewish understanding. When Jesus is arrested, Peter denies him because he couldn't identify with the weakness that Jesus was showing here because he still wanted a, a military forceful leader and not a humble servant. And I know that we identify with Peter because we identify as a disciple. And how often do we have certain concepts or ideas of who Jesus is and what he should be doing in mind? When things don't happen the way that we want him, we're confused, we give up. Because that's, that's the way it's always supposed to work. I think a lot of times we've made Jesus into a formula. When I put X in, I, get, I should be getting Y out, right? If I tithe enough, I should be getting blessed with more money. If I pray enough, this should be all be, be done. But are we allowing Jesus to challenge our faulty concepts? Are we giving him space to reshape our thinking about his way instead of wanting things only our way and that Jesus should meet our demands? Kind of finish up here, Jesus didn't give up on Peter. Throughout this whole time, he didn't give up on Peter. He kept going after him. Let me leave you with some of Peter's words where we just see his transformation happening of, of the book of Acts. He's preaching here about Jesus, and it's just so beautiful when you understand his story, what he's actually saying here. This is what Peter says. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging him on a cross, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had, had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit, the power, 
came on all of those who hit the message. Jesus didn't give up on Peter. He revealed himself over and over again. And Peter allowed Jesus to challenge his views and concept of him and allowed him to finally come to this point and preach who Jesus was. May Jesus reveal himself as who he truly is to you and me today so that we can continue to follow him. Let me pray. Jesus, we thank you that you have more things in mind than we think we need. We thank you that you're bigger and better than all of our concepts. As we, uh, as we approach the table of communion, as we approach the carpet, as we are sitting in our pews, grappling with the concepts that we have about you, lifting them up as a, as a sweet aroma before you, asking for you to change our concepts, Lord, would you meet us in our midst? Would you help us understand who the true Lord Jesus is and how he wants to be with us and how we learn from him? In Jesus' name, amen.